Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with conflicting strategic goals in the Middle East emerging from the war in Gaza as the Biden administration and the Iranian regime both seem to be trying to avoid a wider war while Netanyahu and some IDF leaders want to provoke Hezbollah as an excuse to go after Iran for which they need U.S. help so they are trying to drag the U.S. into a regional conflict. Joining us is Dr. Trita Parsi, the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who has served as a Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University, New York University, Georgetown University, and George Washington University, and he's the co-founder and former President of the National Iranian American Council. His books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, and Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Then we'll look into the surprising pragmatism coming from the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who was offering up a clean, continuing resolution to fund some of the government through January the 19th and the rest through February the 2nd. In going against the House Freedom Caucus, Tuesday's vote will require a two-thirds majority with Democratic support, something that even former Speaker McCarthy did not entertain. Joining us is Craig Holman, who serves as Public Citizens Capitol Hill lobbyist on ethics, lobbying and campaign finance rules. Previously, he was a senior policy analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. Then finally, we will speak with Richard Bruffo, a professor of legislation at Columbia Law School, where he previously served as vice dean at three different times during his career. His research interests include campaign finance reform, government ethics, gerrymandering, election administration, and fair elections. He's also a leading thinker on the new preemption, a critique of states that are increasingly passing ideological laws that override local ordinances. He is the author of a number of books, including Dollars and Democracy, a blueprint for campaign finance reform, and joins us to discuss the Supreme Court's new ethics code, which many see as a PR stunt rather than an enforceable regime. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Dr. Trita Parsi, the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who has served as Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University's New York University, Georgetown University, and George Washington University, and he's the co-founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. His books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, and Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Trita Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Trita. And it seems in a curious way that the U.S. and Iran are trying to avoid a wider war with the uh, 
war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. On Saturday, U.S. Secretary of Defense apparently had a phone call with Yov Gallant, uh, Israel's defense minister, urging the Israelis not to provoke Hezbollah on the northern border. And then there's also the former Iranian negotiator, Zarif, uh, has just mentioned uh, that he thinks that Israel is trying to provoke Iran into a war and that the Iranians have to avoid taking the bait. So is this going on? Are elements in Israel, and particularly Netanyahu, trying to provoke a wider war? Because that's always been a project of Netanyahu's to draw the United States into a war so that the U.S. power can help Israel finally get rid of the Iranian government or the IRGC or whatever their targets are? I don't think that was the Israeli intent or agenda on October 7th or on October 8th. I don't think from the outset they were looking for a larger war. I don't think that was how the U.S. perceived it at the time. However, at this point, there are concerns in the Biden administration that Israel is trying to drag Lebanon, Hezbollah into it, and by that, spark a much larger war and uh, bring Iran into it as well. And I do wonder if this shift in perception or in this shift in interest on the Israeli side towards actually going for a larger war has something to do with the fact that Biden has been so supportive of Israel without any reservations or any conditions at all. That type of a green light to the Israelis may uh, have been part of the reason as to why the Israelis originally were not looking for a larger war, but today may be doing so. And I think it shows again the mistake the Biden administration has committed by uh, giving the Israeli government this degree of support. It's not about whether they there would be any support from the U.S. to Israel at all. And I think that's a different story. But this degree of support with no conditionality, no criticism, no real meaningful pressure to make sure that um, uh, Israel is abiding by international law. All of that, I think, uh, has contributed to a situation in which the Israelis, at least some elements in Israel, are seeing this as a new opportunity to expand the war and bring the United States into it as well. Well, the Israeli press reported several days after the war began that Defense Minister Gallant and several senior IDF commanders wanted to conduct a wide preemptive strike against Hezbollah in Lebanon. Yes, uh, and there are also elements in the Israeli army that argue that, you know, what's the point of uh, mobilizing 350,000 preservers, uh, a reservist, if you don't go to war with uh, Hezbollah? But I don't think that was the majority view. At the time, I'm not certain if that's the majority view today, but certainly it has reached a level in which it has caused alarm in the U.S. government. But again, in my view, the U.S. government's own approach to this may have helped facilitate the situation coming about. But President Biden did dispatch his senior advisor, Amos Hoshtin, to Lebanon last week, who apparently gave a message to Lebanon's Speaker of Parliament, uh, Nabi Berry, urging them to lean on Hezbollah to stay out of this war and not to escalate the situation. I'm not sure that 
there's really a government in Lebanon, so to, to speak of, right? I mean, it's a, essentially a failed state divided up by warlords. Uh, obviously, the bulk of the population, with perhaps the exception of some of the hardliners in Hezbollah, don't want another war because the last time in 2006 it was devastating and they've got massive problems on their hands. So what's going on there? I mean, that contradicts what you're saying, doesn't it, Trita? That at least at least the envoy that Biden dispatched to Lebanon, his message was to stay out of the war and to de-escalate. Well, that's a message to the Lebanese, yeah, of course. I mean, I, again, I think the Biden administration is not looking for uh, a larger war is opposed to it, but they're pursuing a strategy that I don't think is particularly effective because all of the pressure, all of the deterrence has been against Iran and Hezbollah. And part of that, I think, is does make sense, but it doesn't become effective unless it is also coupled with meaningful pressure on Israel to also restrain itself and not lead in this direction uh, of, of expanding the war. So sending the message to Hezbollah, you know, the U.S. has moved uh, military assets to the region. Uh, there's been strikes against some militias in Iraq in retaliation for them striking uh, American bases, etc. That's the deterrence part of it. That is not in and of itself necessarily problematic. But when it is not coupled with any balancing effort of also putting pressure on Israel not to escalate, then it really becomes problematic. And the evidence for that, I think, is the U.S. government itself now being concerned that the Israelis are the ones that are uh, likely going to try to provoke a, uh, a larger war. But Trita Parsi, when you say, talk about the Biden administration's strategy in this war in Gaza, do they have a strategy? I think that's a very good question. Uh, I think what we can say that we see so far, uh, whether it's a strategy or not, is, is a policy, is a conduct, which again is centered on giving Israel full-scale support, uh, certainly not try to have any daylight between the U.S. and the Israeli position publicly, and then uh, privately perhaps put on some pressure. But that pressure, in my view, has been insignificant, and it has been focusing on uh, the type of matters that are of no, that is of more marginal utility. So perhaps, um, you know, getting 20 truckloads of aid into Gaza uh, is not going to make a significant difference in this war. Uh, using that political capital and pressure to actually get a ceasefire or something that is more meaningful would have been of far greater utility. But that was not the approach that the administration wanted to take. Uh, it it is, continues to refuse uh, any effort to actually put real pressure on the Israelis. And again, as part of that, I think we have now come to a situation in which in the absence of any type of restraints, the appetite uh, on the Israeli side to potentially expand the war seems to have grown. Well, we know that Biden can't stand Netanyahu, and Netanyahu is, is an absolute menace because uh, his entire political career has been about destroying any possibility of uh, a Palestinian state and Israel being able to live side by side with the Palestinians. And you should call Treated that uh, the first meeting in the in the Oval Office between Netanyahu and Bill Clinton. Uh, after that meeting, Clinton was so furious he screamed at his aides, "Who the f is the superpower around here?" I mean, this guy is impossible, and I can't imagine that there's much Biden can do about it. I, I mean, he has to support Israel for obviously for domestic political reasons and for fundraising for 2024, but I don't think you can control it. 
Netanyahu, can you? I think you absolutely can if you have the political will to do so. I mean, how are we expecting that the, uh, that Biden's so-called pressure would have any impact on Netanyahu if at the same time Congress is allocating 14 additional billion dollars to Israel at the request of Biden? So if you actually exercise real pressure and you send a clear signal, then I don't think Netanyahu would have much of a choice. Uh, the United States is replenishing uh, um, uh, ammunition and weaponry for the Israelis at the same time. And we also know from the episode in 2021, when on a phone call, Biden told Netanyahu that he's run out of his runway in terms of bombing Gaza. And at the end of that phone call, Netanyahu was forced to concede and agreed to stop the fighting. So we do have examples of U.S. presidents putting that type of a pressure on Israeli prime ministers, including on Netanyahu, and succeeding. The question is, are they willing to do so and are they willing to pay the political price for doing so? That's where the problem has been. Not necessarily that the United States does not have the capacity of putting pressure on Netanyahu. Right, but the $14 billion, I'm not sure that Israel desperately needs that because they, obviously, as you say, the U.S. is providing ammunition and other support no matter what. And uh, the, Israel obviously has a formidable military. So, and that $14 billion, of course, is going nowhere because the new House Speaker is sending a clean bill just to stop the shutdown of the government, which would happen on Friday. So they're not necessarily getting the $14 billion, nor, are, of course, Ukraine getting any money as well. That's, that stuff's on hold, isn't it? It is on hold, but this is about what kind of a message you're sending. Whether that money comes now or comes later, bottom line is, if you're actually trying to put pressure and actually say you have to do this or else, that is completely undermined if you're at the same time going to Congress and asking for additional uh, significant money. I mean, Israel gets roughly 3.8 to $4 billion a year. This would be three times that amount. Um, so again, what kind of a message are you sending if you're sending such contradictory signals? And when you are sending contradictory signals, we shouldn't have any expectation that the pressure will be working. But if you're actually sending consistent messages, uh, then we do have clear examples of the United States being able to uh, have leverage over Israel when Israel is acting in ways that are contradictory to U.S. interests. And what we're seeing right now is that a continuation of this conflict, uh, uh, as well as a potential provocation to expand the conflict, can drag the United States into that war. And that is clearly against the interest of the United States. And today, of course, there's a large demonstration in Washington, D.C. by supporters of Israel. What kind of influence does that have any, do you think? Obviously, there's been massive demonstrations around the world in support of the Palestinians. In London, there was a huge demonstration in just about every other capital around the world. Well, so far, the Biden administration, and I think President Biden himself, has refused to really listen to a lot of the pressure in favor of a, a ceasefire. We've seen no signs that the administration is in a meaningful way moving in that direction. But this is also costing the U.S. tremendously internationally. The U.S. is completely isolated uh, in the world in its position of uh, refusing and blocking a ceasefire. The United States was the one country that vetoed the resolution on, uh, in the U.N. Security Council. It didn't even call for a ceasefire, call for humanitarian pause, which is now the position that the Biden administration later on adopted, but is heavily criticized by humanitarian organizations who are saying that such humanitarian pauses are essentially going to be meaningless 
and that what the world needs right now is not a pause in the killing, but actually an end to the killing. Um, the, the resolution that passed in the UN General Assembly um, only had 13 countries together with the United States voting against it, and that called for um, uh, a ceasefire, and more than 120 countries voted in favor. Uh, we're seeing how diplomats in the region are reporting back to Washington that they fear that the United States has lost an entire generation of young people in the Middle East because of its uh, refusal to accept a ceasefire, its blocking of a ceasefire. We're seeing how internationally, outside of the Middle East, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, how um, there is growing pressure for a ceasefire and growing frustration with the U.S. position. Uh, four countries in Latin America have broken diplomatic relations uh, with Israel. So in the long run, this is also highly problematic for the United States because this is really damaging the U.S.'s global standing. And again, in ways that diplom U.S. diplomats in the Middle East are comparing to the damage that the Bush administration inc uh, uh, incurred when it illegally invaded Iraq. So I guess a manifestation of what you're saying is the recent uh, summit that took place in Saudi Arabia where Mohammed bin Salman met with Iran's president and also Sirius Assad also showed up along with all other Arab leaders and they all collectively condemned the US and, and Israel. Obviously, the governments in that part of the world are either military thugs or kleptocratic clerics or, or medieval monarchies and it probably doesn't hurt them to support Palestine. In fact, it's necessary for them to support Palestine and the angry street so that they uh, nobody starts thinking about getting rid of these dreadful governments, which almost recently happened in Iran. At least a lot of people thought that the women could overthrow the clerics, but they failed because they don't have the guns. So there's a cynical level of this, but in aggregate, the point that you've made is just absolutely glaringly true, Trita. The U.S. is taking a huge hit diplomatically around the world because of its unequivocal support of Israel. Certainly, and, and I think, again, at this point, it may not be entirely clear to Washington, but the conversations I've had with officials from other countries, as well as American journalists stationed there, the message is a very clear one, that this is costing the United States a lot. This, is, this has become a formative experience for a lot of people in the region. And it's not just that the U.S. is supporting Israel. Again, I don't think anyone in the region, for instance, would have expectations that the U.S. wouldn't. But Biden attended the war cabinet in Israel. The signal that sent, intentionally or not, is that what Israel and how Israel have has conducted that war is something that Biden was part of planning and as a result also approved. That is part of the reason I think why there is such an anger about this, because we're talking about a war in which the pace of the killing of civilians and particularly the killing of children far outpaces, both in its speed and in the number, what we have seen in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, and even in the Syrian civil war. And on top of that, incidentally, what we have seen in Ukraine. Well, of course, 
In Ukraine, the Russians have been doing exactly what uh, the Israelis are so outraged about, what Hamas did, all of the brutal attacks against women and children. And that's been routine in Ukraine, murdering women, raping women, castrating male prisoners, shooting prisoners, children, you name it. The Russians have done the most obscene war crimes there. And that hasn't stopped Netanyahu from supporting Putin and not supporting Zelensky. So that's, a, I guess, a bit of a side issue. But let's just talk for in the last couple of minutes, if we can, Trita, about what's happening now on the ground um, in terms of the hospital that's besieged. And what's your sense of already hostages have been killed, either by attempts to rescue them or by Hamas? It's hard to know. But... It seems that there was a chance through the Qataris that uh, at least the foreign hostages and women and children might be released. Uh, But now Hamas wants a five-day pause. That's not going to happen. Uh, What's your just reading in the last few minutes on what's happening on the ground in Gaza? I mean, it's an absolutely devastating situation for the civilians in Gaza, which is the overwhelming majority of the people there, including the overwhelming majority of people that have been killed. It's a devastating situation for the hostages. Um, uh, this type of bombardment and warfare is does not appear to be the likely way of winning the release of the hostages. And indeed, every day that passes, the risk increases that some of the hostages will be killed in the bombardment or will be killed by Hamas. Um, and you can just imagine the, the terror that many of the Israeli families are experiencing right now. And we're also seeing how that has now uh, started to translate into increasing pressure on the Netanyahu government because there is a sense of betrayal amongst many of those families that Netanyahu has prioritized the bombardment of Gaza rather than prioritizing the release of the hostages. In the past, the Israelis have been absolutely adamant about winning the release of their hostages. At one point, they they exchanged 1,000 Palestinian prisoners for one Israeli soldier that had been taken by Hamas. We're not seeing anything near that type of a conduct by the Netanyahu government right now. And it's not entirely clear why, but it is not a scenario that I think can go on for much longer without um, uh, the pressure from the families of these um, uh, hostages taken by Hamas will start to become much, much louder and, and more forceful on the Netanyahu government. But just in closing, this goes beyond Netanyahu, doesn't it? Because the state of Israel was set up in many ways after what happened in Europe with the extermination of the Jews by the Nazis. Uh, it was set up as a country that where Jews would finally be safe. So the trauma of what happened on October the 7th has, has, has driven all of the Israelis, I think, into a mindset where they've lost deterrence and somehow they want to regain it or what i mean do they really collectively want to re-establish security so that they this won't happen again i imagine that's the political uh, pressure isn't it yeah in, in the short term right now that is you know re-establishing the deterrence um you know many israelis i speak to say that essentially you know, there is an element of vengeance here that cannot be ignored. Um, but what has happened, nevertheless, has, I think, um, shattered two assumptions that the Israelis had based much of their planning. on. First of all, there was a belief 
that the continued management of the occupation of Gaza, because Gaza was still technically occupied since the Israelis controlled the borders, uh, that that was manageable. It would every once in a while lead to some violence, but the violence would be contained and Israel could absorb that and it would be worth the cost. The attack on October 7th completely shattered that, of course, because Israel certainly cannot uh, absorb that type of a cost. The second uh, assumption that has been shattered is the idea that you actually can move beyond the Palestinian issue, that the issue as a whole can be contained. You can make these normalization agreements with other Arab countries, and the Palestinians essentially have to um, uh, live with their fate of being indefinitely under occupation, and that, again, that was manageable and the cost was not too high. The extent, now, shattering those assumptions is one thing drawing the right conclusions on what the response should be is a completely different thing. And we're not anywhere near uh, any verdict on where the Israelis are going to fall on that. Well, Trita Passi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Trita Passi, who's Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He has served as a Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University, New York University, Georgetown University, and George Washington University. And he's the co-founder and former President of the National Iranian American Council. And his books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, and Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. We can take a brief station break back looking into the surprising pragmatism coming from the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who was offering up a clean continuing resolution to fund some of the government through January the 19th and the rest through February the 2nd. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Craig Holman, who serves as Public Citizen's Capitol Hill lobbyist on ethics, lobbying and campaign finance rules. Previously, he was Senior Policy Analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Craig Holman. Glad to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Craig. And it's a bit of a surprise, and a welcome one at that, that it seems that the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, is much more pragmatic than uh, first thought. Um, He's come across as a total Trumpster who tried to deny Biden the presidency in in that bogus effort before the Electoral College shortly after the 2020 election. And he's been labeled, not inaccurately, as a Christian nationalist and a sort of right-wing zealot. But he seemed to be, and I've been piling on, by the way, and it seems that he's much more pragmatic in the sense that he's now, even though he's got this sort of laddered idea of a continuing resolution, he's nevertheless looks as if what he's going to do now is present a clean bill, which is being voted on today, Tuesday, that doesn't have any anything attached to it, and it will extend funding for parts of the government, including agriculture, transportation, veterans affairs, etc., through January the 19th, and fund the Defense Department 
and other remaining parts of the government through February the 2nd, and he will need Democratic votes to do this. And McCarthy didn't even try to get Democratic votes. So this seems like a real departure. This is stunning. Uh, as of over the weekend, everyone here on Capitol Hill was preparing for a shutdown. It did not look it did not look likely that uh, the government would be able to continue operating. But uh, Johnson did surprise everyone, uh, not only the Democrats, but also his own party by coming out with a uh, stopgap continuing resolution that, that keeps the current spending levels of 2023, which is about $1.6 trillion. It is uh, laddered, and as you noted, I mean, most of the domestic uh, funding programs will last until January 19th. Uh, defense and other appropriations will last till February 2nd. But that gets the country past the whole Christmas recess and provides the House and the Senate with uh, desperately needed time to try to negotiate a, a final appropriations bill. By the way, I, I want to point out, I mean, uh, the Republicans, many of the Republicans appear quite dead set against this latest proposal. As a matter of fact, the Rules Committee yesterday, controlled by the Republicans, refused to move this continuing resolution to the floor. So uh, Johnson is moving it by suspension, which means he goes around the Rules Committee, and it means there can be no amendments added to it. And secondly, it requires a two-thirds vote on the floor in order to be approved. But that appears to be the process that's going ahead. And do you think he's got the two-thirds? Yes, I do. Uh, it's, it's going to rely on the Democrats, and the Democrats appear to be warming up to this whole idea, even though it doesn't include what many Democrats really wanted, and that is um, emergency support for Ukraine and Israel. Uh, that's, that's not part of this continuing resolution. But the Democrats are warming to it. Uh, Schumer is already on the Senate side, has expressed uh, support uh, for this continuing resolution. And as a matter of fact, he stopped the Senate vote on their own version of a continuing resolution to wait to see what the House does at this point. Uh, the White House, President Biden, initially was uh, saying this is a no-go, and now he's remaining neutral and uh, saying, well, let's see what happens. And we've got the same with the House Democratic Caucus at this point. So it uh, looks like it's going to get most Democratic support and some Republican support, which ought to be enough to get that two-thirds. But it also means, right, that the fight over spending cuts will be delayed until next year, and then all the other important issues, uh, controversial, albeit, uh, aid to Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, humanitarian aid for Palestinians, uh, border security, all that stuff is going to be delayed till next year? That is correct. It doesn't resolve the issue. It just uh, postpones it until next year. But, uh, you know, given how close we were to a complete shutdown here, I mean, it would have happened uh, Friday night at 12.01, or I guess at Saturday morning. Uh, we were, you know, just plunging into this shutdown, 
And uh, now it looks like Johnson is buying time here to uh, try to work out some of the more controversial details. But yeah, we may once again be in this same boat next year. So does this isolate the Freedom Caucus radicals uh, like Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Warren Davidson of Ohio, Bob Good of Virginia, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, and none other than George Santos of uh, New York? Yeah. yeah, it certainly does. I mean, the Freedom Caucus considers this a, a slap in the face. However, I've noticed that no one in the Republican ranks have yet called for ousting Mike Johnson from his leadership post. I think the Republican caucus just felt so beaten up over the last, uh, you know, vote for a speaker that they just don't want to go through that battle once again. So, I mean, even though it just takes one Republican, you know, Margaret Taylor Greene or Santos to call for a vote on whether or not to keep Johnson as speaker, no one has called for it. Not yet, anyway. Right. And as of now, we're recording on Tuesday. Where What's happening on the floor? Uh, the timing will be uh, early this evening. I'm expecting a vote probably around 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening. In the evening, Eastern time. So tell me then, what does this mean about the tenure of this House Speaker? Is this just, you know, in order to do the responsible adult thing, which you got to give the guy credit for, uh, it's nothing more insane than shutting down the government, and they've done it before, and, and obviously they should, the Republicans should realize how damaging it is to them, but the ideologues apparently don't care. So that's the good news, but is it a harbinger for his tenure, or is it just a one-off in order to get, you know, the government going so that later on they can deal with all the other problems. It remains to be seen whether Mike Johnson has, in fact, moderated his viewpoints. I've got a feeling he just didn't want to be the speaker credited with shutting down the government. And so he's just trying to buy time here. Uh, we'll find out January 19th and February 2nd whether or not Mike Johnson really has become more flexible in his viewpoints. I'm not convinced he has, by the way. I think he's just buying time. And has Trump weighed in? Because Trump, you know, basically took credit for him. He calls him MAGA Mike Johnson. He's his <laughs> protege. Uh, I, haven't heard, I haven't heard a word from Trump on this. I don't think he's, he's said anything yet on this, because uh, I, I haven't heard a word from Trump. I see. Point. Well, that's unusual. But Mitch McConnell, hasn't he joined in with Chuck Schumer? Yes. Uh, basically Mitch, praising Mitch this McConnell, move? Yes, Mitch McConnell has endorsed this continuing resolution. Uh -huh. And so it's got Senate Republicans, and it looks like Senate Democrats, is, and perhaps probably the White House, uh, all seem to be rallying behind it. You see, had there been a shutdown, and there may still be, we'll see if this this resolution can get a two-thirds vote this evening, but had there been a shutdown, the Republicans would have taken all the blame for it, and uh, Mike Johnson just didn't want to be in that position in taking that sort of blame. 
So what's the timeline then? Because Friday is the deadline, right? There's not much time left. That's right. Friday after midnight. That is the deadline. Uh, the House, if they approve it uh, this evening, it'll quickly go over to the Senate where it will very likely be adopted by the Senate. And then goes to the White House, right? Yeah, and then to the White House. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, President Biden, who initially was opposed to this idea of not providing funding for the Ukraine war and for Israel, has now become neutral and has actually said he'll wait to see what's going on, which means, which means, uh, you know, he'll sign it. And this will happen probably by Thursday, right? The day before the deadline. Yes, yes. We'll have probably about one day to go. Right. But this is a pattern. I mean, this is nothing to celebrate that the American government's got its act together, right? This is this is just dodging another bullet or kicking the can down the road, isn't it? Well, I'm I'm celebrating it. I mean, here uh, on Capitol Hill, we all thought the government was inevitably going to shut down by the end of the week, and now, even though it is kicking the can down the road a bit, uh, at least the government is not going to shut down before Christmas. No, well. I guess you, we should be thankful for small mercies then, right? <laughs> That's right. And who knows? Maybe maybe Mike Johnson really has changed his attitude. Uh, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical of it, but we'll see next year. And the Freedom Caucus, even though they're, they're saying they're not going to go along with this, they haven't issued any threats, right? No, nobody's saying... The, pulling the trigger on the fact that only one of them can step forward like uh, uh, Matt Gates did and sh- shut down the whole house. Yep, no one has threatened to do that yet. And, you know, had Matt Gates been interested in doing that or Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think we would have heard about it by now. And what's happening with the former Speaker McCarthy? There's some talk that he may not run again. There's also um, a headline that he, he got into a shoving match with a with another Republican. Do you know anything about that? Uh, no, but what I do know is Bernie Sanders on the Senate side stopped a, uh, fist, a fist fight on the Senate floor today. Oh, tell me about that. Oh, uh, the Republican senator from Oklahoma, Senator Mullen, got furious with the chair of the Teamsters Union, O'Brien, and challenged him to a fistfight while during a hearing. And uh, Bernie Sanders just started pounding the gavel, you know, and yelling, you're a senator. This is not how you can behave here. And, you know, Mullen was up. He was ready to launch into uh, an actual fistfight on the Senate floor. Well, that Mullen has is, is, is behaved like that before, right? I mean, he's... He's an anti-union zealot. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, not on the Senate floor. This would have been in the committee that Bernie Sanders uh, presides over. Right, right. But So that was a hearing today, because I know that he's made similar threats in previous hearings, uh, Mullen. Oh, yeah. He, uh, but this time he wanted to literally take the gloves off and 
Apparently duke, duke it out, right? <laughs> he's trained black belt or something like that, and so he has a hard time controlling himself. Apparently, uh huh. Well, you know, you got Tuberville there, who's uh, Trump's protege. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's some serious clowns that uh, unfortunately joined the world's greatest club. It's hard yeah. to believe that. Yeah, that, Bernie Sanders was yelling at Mullen, saying, you know. People already think we're a bunch of nuts here in Congress. Do you want to go a step further? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's hope that the Senate can do something. We were talking on today's program about the Supreme Court's sort of public relations move to issue a rather flimsy and somewhat pointless code of ethics. And then you've got the Senate paralyzed by just one guy, at least the Pentagon paralyzed by Tuberville, and now you got this other guy wanting to get into a fist fight. And then, of course, we saw the last month of dysfunction in the House. Little wonder the American people are alienated from their government. And, of course, unfortunately, it would seem, Craig, that the more alienated they are from the government, the more likely they are to vote for Donald Trump, which is very peculiar, but that seems to be the psychological mechanism here. Yeah, I think that is the trend. I mean, uh, a, a lot of people admire Trump for standing up, you know, and, and trying to not not compromise on anything. You know, I consider him a, a very dangerous zealot. I mean, he's already said if he gets re-elected president, he's going to use the attorney general's office to prosecute all his opponents or enemies, is how he would describe it. You know, and that's those are the kind of terms that, you know, that fascists tend to use. Well, let me just end on a note where a very senior official who worked in the, uh, in the Trump uh, White House, uh, very close to the president, uh, who has not gone public before, and it remains anonymous, said about Trump, he lacks any shred of human decency, humility, or caring. He is morally bankrupt, breathlessly dishonest, lethally incompetent, and stunningly ignorant of virtually anything related to governing, history, geography, human events, or world affairs. He is a traitor and a malignancy in our nation and represents a clear and present danger to our democracy and the rule of law. I agree with everything that was just said there. I mean, uh, we, we came so close to losing democracy in, uh, you know, in 2020, so close to losing democracy. And, you know, at this point, if we reelect Trump or if America reelects Trump, and by the way, he's Trump is leading in credible polls. If he gets reelected, he clearly has no intention of ever leaving the White House, no matter what voters say. Well, Craig Holman, I thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure, Ian. And again, I mean, speak with Craig Holman, who serves as Public Citizens Capitol Hill lobbyist on ethics, lobbying, and campaign finance rules. Previously, he was a senior policy analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether or not the Supreme Court's new ethics code is a PR stunt, as many see it, rather than an enforceable regime.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Bruffo, who is a professor of legislation at Columbia Law School, where he previously served as vice dean at three different times during his career. His research interests include campaign finance reform, government ethics, gerrymandering, election administration, and fair elections. He's also a leading thinker on the new preemption a critique of states that are increasingly passing ideological laws that override local ordinances. And he's the author of a number of books, including Dollars and Democracy, a Blueprint for Campaign Finance Reform. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Briffaut. Uh, thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Richard. And what do you make of the Supreme Court's new code of ethics that uh, they just announced on Monday? obviously after a lot of pressure from incredibly bad headlines about uh, favors from billionaires to at least two of the nine justices. To many, though, it looks like a public relations effort as opposed to something really substantial and workable. What do you think? Um, I think I agree with both halves of that, uh, which is on the one hand... uh, it is a recognition by the court that they do have a problem with the public, and it's, it is an acceptance, maybe grudgingly, but an acceptance that they have some accountability to the public, which not all the justices have always acknowledged. So I think, it, to the, I think this document is a positive thing in that it is an acknowledgment that they, although they have life tenure and a great power that they are ultimately, that they are accountable to the public. So that's good. On the other hand, I think as your question suggests, the, the, the code of conduct that they present, there's nothing new there, and there's nothing, I mean, indeed they say that. They say this is really just putting into one place, and uh, writing down and putting into one place what they say they've, is the rules they've always followed, but now they're writing them down and spelling them out. And so they, there's no, far from any acknowledgement that this is, that they that there were mistakes or that there's an improvement is needed. They're just saying that this is what we've always done, and so the public misunderstood where we were. That that that, that these are we've always been doing this. There's no change. So in that sense, it's kind of a pushback on any suggestion that there's been impropriety. But maybe one third thought is, although none of it is binding and there's no enforcement mechanism. There now really is a public standard that the court has put out in its own name so that in future situations where there may be questions of conflict of interest or taking gifts or free travel or activities by a spouse, there's now something in writing that they said that they're going to abide by. Again, there's no law enforcement consequences, but there will be, there could be public consequences. They could make it maybe easier for uh, journalists and publicly active people to actually say, to actually make the claim that your your behavior fell short, not of some imaginary standard, but of the standard that you've put down. So I think, on balance, I think it's a good thing. It's not a great thing. But, Richard, my sense is, though, of what, when they they say in the preamble to this new code of ethics, that there's nothing really new here and that there's been a misunderstanding and, quote, 
to dispel this misunderstanding, we are issuing this code, which largely represents a codification of principles that we have long regarded as governing our conduct. Uh, well, I find that a little arrogant, frankly, because what's been going on in the press, and particularly with the revelations from ProPublica, that's not a misunderstanding. That's, those are facts. You know, you can make the case that this Supreme Court has been captured by billionaires. At least two of the justices, Alito and Thomas, are showing absolute fealty to billionaires. That seems to be the constituency that they represent and that they advocate for. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not really going to get into that so much. I mean, that also, they, they may very well be taking those positions whether or not they're getting free trips, frankly. Uh, there's no, um, that just me beware in terms of their, um, where their, uh, ideological views lie. Um, yeah, no, you're right. They're, they are saying that, uh, gee, we've done nothing wrong and everything is fine. And we've always been ethical. We've always abided by principles. That's true. I still think it's, um, an acknowledgement that they, that they owe something to the public. And given some of the prior statements, uh, by some of the justices, particularly by Alito, which seems to suggest they owe nothing to the public. To some extent, it is uh, it is an acknowledgement that the that public public opinion and public uh, you know acceptance of them as um, honorable ethical people matters. So I think it's not uh, it, it's not nothing. It's not a lot, but it's also not nothing. Well, my <laughs> little description of them that the Supreme Court's been captured by billionaires, or at least Leonard Leo uh, has put, what, five of the six justices on the Supreme Court, and he's obviously a conduit of dark money coming from billionaires. I guess if my description was too strong, then I think I'm reflecting a feeling that's pretty widespread amongst the public, that something's wrong with this court. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Well, I think you're, you're, I mean, captured is the word that I'm sort of, the question is, are you think they've been bought or do you think that their views are, reflect the views of the people who put them forward? I think um, judges have views and um, I'm not disagreeing with you that they're, that they have very strong views and those very strong views have been very, very beneficial to some people. But, uh, but that's a question of, who's the president who's making the nominations and who's the Senate that's confirming them as much as it is anything about their personal conduct. Well, indeed, um, I think they probably are in sync with Leonard Leo and with uh, the Senate. Although those hearings, whether they go, whether they involve the more recent ones with Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, prior to that, you know, balls and strikes for for the chief justice, etc. I mean, isn't that a problem in itself that these confirmation hearings don't really reveal anything? And then when they tell you about stare decisis and they're going to stick to tradition and not rock the boat and not make any radical changes, well, hello, what happened uh, with the yeah. Dobbs decision? There are a lot of issues with the current Supreme Court. Uh, which these, this, this uh, code of conduct doesn't begin to address. The code of conduct is really about uh, sort of a narrower set of questions about things like, I mean, or rather the recent um, news stories that, that uh, the code of conduct responds to are things like getting free travel um, or you know, getting, uh, what is it, a car, an expensive car, 
getting you know free trips, getting going the hunting lodges, stuff like that. That's I the code of conduct. Even if the justices never took a single thing from anybody by anything, they would still have their ideologies that would affect how they decide cases. So, given that at least this is being produced, this code of conduct, that I suppose in itself is good news, isn't it, uh, Richard? In this, the sense that at least they they're responding, at least they're acknowledging that the public is a little restive. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes, I w- that's what I would say. Is that they they've acknowledged that they owe the public. It's, it's just it's it's there is an account. There's a sense that they have some accountability to the public. Maybe not as much as we would like, but or but they've acknowledged this by putting this out. They've acknowledged that they haven't acknowledged that anybody has done anything wrong. That's also true, but they do acknowledge that they owe something like something to the public, uh, and that given some of the more truculent statements by some members of the Supreme Court, and given that they all signed this, I think that's a step forward. It may only be a small step forward, but it is a step forward. And it turns out that it's the, the change was brought about, at least as far as we know, because you know the court watchers don't really have necessarily the best information, but it's, what we, it's all that we have. That it seems like that Justices Amy Coney Barrett, Elena Kagan, and Brett Kavanaugh were driving this effort to have something in terms of an ethics code. So that's an interesting coalition, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I actually have not seen those stories, but it does. It's it, these are three of the younger, more recent justices who more recently came through the process. They they they're more recently connected to the real world, uh, in that they had other. Uh, if you when you've been on the court for for twenty five thirty years, as some of them have, they may be a little more disconnected from the outside world when you've only been on the court for um, two or three or five years. You may be more connected and understand more the concerns that people outside are raising. So that may be part of it, and it also suggests that. Although they have obviously strong views, strong ideological views, they also have some commitment to the legitimacy of the court and not just to their own uh, ideological views. So the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee Chairman Dick Durbin has said that this code does does not appear to contain any meaningful enforcement mechanism to hold justice account- accountable, and that is pretty obvious. But how much is this going to head off efforts by the Senate Judiciary Committee to subpoena Harlan Crow and, in particular, uh, Leonard Leo, which the Republicans, led by Lindsey Graham, have threatened to filibuster. And, in fact, Lindsey Graham issued the threat that if you go ahead and subpoena these two, there'll be a bleep storm. Yeah, I mean, I think the real—I think this— this uh, document alone is not going to head off anything uh, designed to uh, that, to head off any subpoenas, because after all, it really relates to this document doesn't tell us anything about what have been the influences on the on the justices and whether there have been any inappropriate influences. On the other hand, as your question also indicates, it's not clear that any kind of subpoena is going to get out of the Senate, given uh, the intensity of the Republican, given how narrowly the Senate is divided. Uh, and the intensity of the Republican opposition. So 
I'm not not sure what happens next on that front. How just how how much do the Democrats want to risk a confrontation? Might be a confrontation that means that that no other Biden judicial nominees get confirmed this year. Um, I mean, if I, the Republicans might want to do a blockade the way Senator Tuberville has done a blockade on military nominations. I mean, uh, Republicans have, you know, for good reasons or bad, have taken a very strong position that being concerned about Supreme Court ethics is is purely partisan, even though there are separate interests, reasons to be interested in the ethics. So we'll see. I mean, it's just hard to know what's going to happen next. That this the, this code of conduct does not resolve any of the issues that have been raised about the behavior of some justices, but it's much more about, I think, going forward than finding than anything in the past. But do you think that it reveals the priority on the part of the Republicans, which is to, apparently to protect billionaires and a, Well, I think they may just want to protect the court. It's also not just billionaires, but obviously they have a stake in the Dobbs decision, which doesn't appear to have a particular uh, big money valence. I mean, it's not only about that. I mean, uh, there's a whole set of decisions or the, the gun rights decisions. It's not clear that those are also big money cases. There's Republicans, a whole set of Republican agenda items are, have benefited from uh, recent Supreme Court decisions. Um, and they see this, that the concerns about the ethics of the justices as just um, a veil for attacking the substance of the opinions. Well, I think your point that Lindsey Graham and the Republicans, uh, even though they're the majority on the, they are a minority on the Judiciary Committee, they have a lot of leverage, and particularly in approving or moving moving nominations forward, as Biden tries to play catch up to the enormous number of uh, federal judges that uh, Trump appointed, most if not all, handpicked by Leonard Leo and the Federalists. I mean, they've the the. There's been some degree of cooperation in terms of getting judicial nominees through. If the Republicans really wanted to to block that, they could, at the very least, slow things down a lot more and maybe actually succeed, given how, how narrowly divided the Senate is. Well, Richard Bruffo, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Sure. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Briffo, who is a professor of legislation at Columbia Law School, who's previously served as the vice dean at three different times during his career. His research interests include campaign finance reform, government ethics, gerrymandering, election administration, and fair elections. He's also a leading thinker on the new preemption, a critique of states that are increasingly passing ideological laws that override local ordinances, and he's the author of a number of books, including Dollars and Democracy, a Blueprint for Campaign Finance Reform. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.